For those of you just joining us, we have been talking about the Holy Spirit, and specifically a little bit, why is it that there are things that are sitting there in Scripture that were just, that's been there the whole time, and we've never really noticed it, for whatever reason. So, uh, we've been talking about a bunch of different things, but we're kind of getting to where the rubber hits the road. Uh, how do we then live this out? What does the Spirit do for us on a, on a regular basis? And as we've been saying, this is where things start getting colorful. So, one last time. Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit is going to come and empower him. And what does that mean? It's like the Spirit is going to come and baptize you, and you're going to be, be filled with the Spirit's power. When you hear that in, in the beginning of, of Acts, what do you tend to think? Acts 1, the Spirit is going to come on you with power. Which I think you should, right? Absolutely. You think of Pentecost. You think of whooshy wind coming through the temple and, and tongues of fire and people speaking in tongues. All right, what else? And you will be my witnesses. It's going to give you power. And you, how does the Spirit empower you to be witnesses? Well, I'd like to have a definition of power because in our day and age, power is a lot of different things. Sure. Um... Dynamism. The dynamism. Um, everything that you think of in terms of power. I'm just thinking, you know, like Christians were martyred so often that it's like hard to say they had the power. You know, when sure. you look back and people that aren't Christians can go, well, yeah, right, what power do you have? Well, that's a good point. <clears throat> um, when we think of being empowered, led by God, directed by God, do we tend to automatically assume that that means protected by God? You know, I have power, therefore, I will make it through this. Like, well, empowered to be witnesses may not include empowered to, to win a particular fight as such. Especially since half the time the word witness in scripture is, is the same word for martyr. So, okay, it, so for instance, like, you know, like when you watch a goofy, you know, it's a movie, it's just a movie. Mm -hmm. But... It really bugs me when I think about real life that, you know, you have the demons and all that stuff going on, mm -hmm. that I always just look at it as if you empower yourself in, with scripture and with God, that that demon cannot do the things. Right. But we don't tend to look like, you know, we always kind of act like we cower and that the demons have well, the power. Besides, if we empower ourselves with scripture, the demon can't do anything. Where do we see that in the Bible? seeing anything that ever said if you empower yourself with scripture, demons can't harm you. Oh, no, no, no that, sorry, I misunderstood. No, that's all right. Yeah, I, I mean, demons are forever quoting scripture, aren't they? Because, like, Stephen still got stoned. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, in a way, he look, when people look outside, they don't understand it, so it's like, how do you explain it? Okay, since I said that, and, and I do think it's important that we realize there's nothing about scripture that prevents a demon from being able to do things to you, and there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that God is automatically going to protect us from any kind of harm, per se. There's no, there's no overarching, no, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Um, so, is there anything in Scripture that suggests that God might protect us from Satan, or that there's ways to stand against Satan? Okay, since you specifically brought uh, Scripture, this, we'll be preaching about this in a sec. Did Jesus use scripture in, re in reacting to Satan? Yes. yes. And the moment Jesus quoted scripture, Satan had to stop, right? No. Actually, the first thing Satan did after Jesus quoted scripture was to quote scripture. So, it's not scripture itself, but what is it that, that we can make use of, that we're even told to make use of when dealing with Satan? The Holy Spirit. Ironically, the Holy Spirit, right? Or, or even the name of Christ. Or the authority of God. It's not... And walk this real carefully with me. You are supposed to ground yourself in Scripture, but not as an incantation. Like, Scripture itself has the power that will prevent this. But rather, the authority of God, the Holy Spirit who's in you, will, will help you to stand against Satan. Scripture can be... Um, the Word can be, can be a shield. It can, it can help protect you, but not, like, prevent any attacks against you. If you quote scripture, Satan must flee. That's not exactly the way that, that works. But, if you stand in the authority of God, 
the name of Christ, the Holy Spirit within you. God can make Satan flee. It's a, it's a difference. And, and, and I, I, too many times we, we either do what you were saying, we, we just we cower in fear and we say, I have no authority, I can't do anything, demons are much bigger than me. And you're like, yeah, kind of, more powerful than you, yeah. And yet, God is so much more powerful than demons. And so sometimes, even in, in, in Christian circles, sometimes we can almost treat the Bible and God's word as if, like I said, it's, it's magic. We use its power. We direct it. We use an incantation to make Satan go away. It's Satan's magic versus God's magic. Yeah. The same thing with Jesus' name. It can be. Um, oh, oh give, me, give me a good biblical example of that. So there were these brothers. and Seven of them. Seven of them. And they were using Christ's name as an incantation, right? And the demons very, I love this section where they're like, oh, I, I've, I've heard of Paul and I know Jesus, and I don't think you know either of them. You know, I'm going to beat the snot out of you. It's basically the way that, that works. It's, it's like, you're just using this as if it's a magic trick. Therefore, it's down to my strength versus your strength. And we're stronger than you. But if you go, no, no. It's not a magic trick. It's not an incantation. I'm in, not invoking God's name as power that you can't stand against. No, I'm invoking God's name as authority you can't stand against. I'm standing in his authority. That's a fundamentally different sort of thing. All of which is really interesting tangent off of what I was going to say. But we've been talking about empowerment, and this is one of the many different things. In Ephesians 3, if you remember... And, and, and originally this was going to be one lesson, which is why we keep having people like, man, it's the third time we talked about it. Yes. In Ephesians 3, the main thing that Paul is talking about in terms of the Spirit's empowering, at the end of Ephesians 3, beginning of Ephesians 4, is empowering to what? Anybody remember? This is why we do the review. To love. To understand God's huge, unfathomable love. To be filled to the full measure of God in this. Not just our full measure, but God's full measure in us so that we love the way God loves. We demonstrate God's love to those around us. It's an empowering of love, which is, again, not the kind of empowerment we often think of. But then, when we looked at how that bears out, and we started talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the early church, we saw that kind of all over the place. I mean, we saw that with what, what was it that Jesus said that they'll know you're, you're Christians? What was the? What would you call that if you go out and demonstrate your Christianity and people see your Christianity? What would that make you? A witness. So Paul says, I pray that the Holy Spirit empower you with God's love in a way that you have the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, unifying you together in that love. Jesus says, if you love one another... In that spiritual sense, people will know, and you will be witnesses. And he says, now I'm going to go empower you with the Spirit to be my witnesses. And we go, tons of fire. Yes, but there are other layers of this. Even like we talked about in the Old Testament, that one of the gifts of the Spirit is apparently ripping gates off their hinges. Right? Paul doesn't list that one. But apparently that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Much like metalworking and drawing up temple plans. Gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, love in, in, a, in, a, in a supernatural sort of way that we can love with God's love is itself a witness. And somehow we, we just we kind of divorce that because it's not maybe as spectacular. Do me a favor. Reread Acts from last time. Acts 5, 42 through 64. Since Terry specifically brought up Stephen, let's go there. Because clearly I hadn't planned to go there yet. You know, but, but I'm changing the PowerPoint as we go to go to Stephen. That's great. I know, it's pretty impressive. I do work for Jesus. <laughs> All right, somebody read me Acts 5, 42 through 6, 4. And I will step back in case day the lightning bolt Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of <coughs> So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and 
wisdom. We will turn the, this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Okay. So, first off, describe the qualities they're looking for in these deacons. These servants. No, for the ones that are waiting tables. Because the uh, elders were waiting tables, right? Why would, by the way, if you're, if you're trying to build a church, why would you be waiting tables? What is that demonstrating? Service. Tangible, loving one another, right? And building that community and stuff. So, yeah, it's a servant. It's your serving. So, not from the elders. I'm asking what the people that they're wanting to wait tables, what kind of qualities are we looking for? Shouldn't we at least look for somebody who's good at waiting tables? Huh. Why were they looking for wise Christians who are full of the Spirit to wait on tables? Help me out here. Because if you've got a tangible ministry, is there any more, other than cleaning toilets, is there a more just tangible ministry than I'm handing food to people? It's just mundane. Good, 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 but mundane. Why are you looking for somebody who's wise and full of the Spirit to wait tables? It also shows you character. Having people that would not do that, they would assign you to do it, but they would do it. And it also shows, okay, what? I, I think those are nice, like, secondary parts to it. And I think they're super important, yep. and hopefully you have an answer and all those things. Yep. But it is a ministry unto itself. It is not a lesser than preaching the gospel. It's just done in a different format. So let's, let's try to link all those together. Yes, it's showing your character. Maybe even more so, aren't you showing Christ's character in what you're doing? Which is what you were saying earlier. We're like, serve as Christ serves. Word serve. So technically, you're showing Christ's character, and the ministry isn't just handing food to people any more than we talk about fellowship being the food deaconess. It's not about the food. The food is part of it, but the ministry itself is tangibly showing Christ's love to people. It is its own ministry. It is building the, co the, the community. It's building the family. It's showing human beings that they have inherent worth, that they matter. And so when it comes down to it, in and of itself, this is crucial. And it is never being presented as a lesser ministry than the elders. The elders, as we talked last time, weren't saying, well, this is beneath us. Other people were saying, you're not doing the overarching looking stuff. You know, the the, the the macro level stuff that you're supposed to be doing because you're you're spending all your time doing the micro level stuff. Not like better or less or more spiritual, less spiritual, but you're not praying, you're not teaching the word because you're doing the nuts and boltsy stuff, which is so crucial to what we're doing. But we need to have some kind of differentiation. Yes. I just like to that when they, they come up with this plan, they talk with everyone and everyone's in agreement, then they lay hands on these people. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. We'll get to that in a second. How does all that reflect what we've been talking about? Ephesians 3 through 4, Paul says, I, I pray that the Spirit will empower you to love. Um, John 13, Jesus says, they'll know you are Christians by the love that you show. Acts 2, 44 through 47, which was cool, and we know this story, but do you think about it as they broke bread and they're together with one another, as specifically they're loving each other. They're showing conscious community and love. All this is saying... Building community, building one another up, demonstrating that we are genuinely, actively, consciously loving one another. What do we see here in Acts 5, 6, 5 through 6? <coughs> Somebody read 5 through 6. This proposal <clears throat> pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands with them. Okay. 
What does this section specifically tell us about Stephen and his qualifications to wait tables? Anything else? Full of and full of faith. Because that's what you're looking for, right? Yes. So, okay, for instance, at the last congregational meeting, Wendy said, you know, I, I'm wearing a lot of hats. I, I put on that the building and grounds deacon hat because it needed to be done. I, I think I need to step away from that. I will confess that the elders, as we've thought about it and prayed about it, our first thought was, all right, who do we know that's good at building and groundsy kinds of stuff? Because we're stupid, right? That's the first thought that came to our minds. Because you're here. That's the way that we think. And so we, again, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Is that the first thing that came to their minds? Or at least what Dr. Luke puts down is the first thing, the crucial thing. <coughs> As we've been talking about praying about it, we're like, maybe, maybe the primary thing that we should be praying about is not who would be good at building the groundsy stuff? Who is God laying on our hearts to do this? Who, who has a passion for building up our, our, the family of God? Who is wise and full of the Spirit? Who, who has strong faith? Maybe, maybe we should start with the tangible physical qualifications for this as if we were thinking this is purely a tangible physical job. Absolutely, because I don't have building the groundsy. I wasn't even going to go there. But... The, <laughs> But again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a totally natural take that we did that. And then I think it, it shows some wisdom that we finally went, uh, uh, wait a minute, is that what the early church did with their deacons? Maybe we're putting the cart before the horse. I mean, Michael, you have a degree in missions. It makes total sense that you're the missions deacon. And yet, if God wasn't calling you to that, we don't, we don't want you in that. This isn't, this isn't the way, it's too late now you're there. But uh, Can I just say putting all that in context though when you look at the like throughout the gospels the pharisees were not willing to do any of this kind of stuff oh yeah and jesus made that very apparent so i think this was a completely new concept would, that we are action wise witnessing and what would that in and of itself if you go the holy people the people who are the ones teaching the word of god the ones who are who are preaching Spiritual truth. They're the ones handing you food. They're the ones taking care of the sick. They're the ones doing this. She's like, no, that's that's the opposite of what we tend to think in that in that culture. And again, as we talked about in, in, in the church history class, if you remember, one of the biggest early pushes for Christianity within the, the Roman Empire came because of a massive plague. There was a horrible plague, and and decimated the Roman Empire, and the Roman doctors. Just we're throwing people into the houses and locking the doors and going, we'll open it up in a couple months. Whoever's still alive gets to come back out. Quarantine, we've got to save the rest of the, of the empire. And it was the Christians who said, lock me in with them. Somebody needs to take care of that family. I'll take care of them. And I'm not afraid of death. Your Roman doctor does nothing. Your Roman neighbor, pagan neighbor, does nothing. The priest down the street says, I'll light a candle for you. The Christians step up and go, literally, lock me into the quarantine ward. I'll take care of the family. Thousands came to know the Lord as a result of that. Because of that, getting your fingernails dirty, tangible, I'm going to do something with my faith. Are we consciously concerned about our leaders being similarly full of the Holy Spirit today? We're trying. Our church, we're trying. I know churches that are trying, but the church in general, no, not always. And even if we do, well, back up. I've already kind of addressed this, so maybe I'll answer my own question. If not, what kind of question? What kind of qualifications do we tend to look for? The ones that match the role that we're looking for. Or you go, I, I want a good pastor. So what, what am I looking for? Well, he needs to be an administrator. He needs to be a good speaker. He needs to be able to have some counseling experience. He needs to be. You know, none of those are bad. But shouldn't the very first thing we look for be somebody that we say, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith? By the way, it would be great if he could speak so, you know, fairly good and teach the Word, since we're looking for somebody who will shepherd and teach the Word. Even if we do tend to look for people who are full of the Holy Spirit, if we even use that phrase, what do we tend to think of when we say that? If we even use that phrase today, maybe you don't use the phrase enough to even have an opinion on this. 
But if Christians do use that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, what do we tend to think? I would think so. Oh, we'll get to verse. <laughs> but yeah, it's filled with the Holy Spirit. We tend to think, oh, Pentecostal. And we go, because the whole predicate of this class is that when we think Holy Spirit, we tend to think Jiminy Cricket or Pentecost, right? He stands on your shoulder and tells you, hey, I shouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, good job. Thank you. Or, oh, tons of fire. That doesn't happen anymore, by the way. So it's like, that is, tends to be the sum total of what we get out of the Holy Spirit. All right. Why, and this is going back to what Sarah said, why do people who are just waiting tables need hands-on prayers of dedication? Because if it's a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit, that's, it's hard to hard to be operating from the Holy Spirit because we are natural people still have flesh and people and operate out of our flesh. And there's probably spiritual warfare too. Absolutely. Good and we're sharing authority of Christ. And so, by the elders, those in authority, overseeing, um, putting hands on it, showing the congregation, the people that they're serving, that they're in authority to do what ministry they're being asked to do. So it's a reminder to the elders that this isn't some sort of lesser, why don't you guys just go retake this? It's a reminder to everybody in the room that these are ministers of the gospel and what they're doing. It's a reminder to the deacons that we are laying hands going, you're not just waiting tables. You're never just waiting tables. That is not what this is. Uh, I think there's also a, like, a tangible passing of authority. Like We see elsewhere in Acts where with the laying out of hands, that that's when people were filled with the spirit and start speaking to come. So it's or something healed or what have you, which is Shining Nickel after class. Because that's where I was going with what she was doing. It's, like, it's a tangible reminder of all these things, but it's also saying, I, I, I hand the mantle of this ministry to you. I hand the authority of Christ to you. You go in Christ's name, enjoy. You know, it is, it's a powerful image, but it's also a specific action of handing Christ's authority to the people who are doing this. What's the implication of the first word in verse 7? What's the first word in verse 7? Okay, what depends on your translation. No, 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 no. Uh, Okay, so, and, whatever. So, what does that suggest? No, no not just in continuation. Yeah, okay, as a result. Somebody read me verse 7. What's the significance of that last phrase in verse 7? Verse became Christians because of that. And not just others. Priests. People who are supposed to be having the mantle of God's power on them. And, and quite frankly, even the best of them would never have been doing all this stuff. Because which is the, the emphasis in Greek and in English here of, of that first word, because of all of this stuff that had happened with laying out of hands and of the deacons and the deacons going out and you're finding people full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of God's power, to what? To tangibly love. People came to know the Lord, including priests. That is working through the priesthood. That's a powerful image. It's a powerful image that God is working this way. And what exactly is happening that's bringing all this about? I'd argue this is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Okay, who wanted Acts 8? Acts 6 8. Okay, Acts 6 8. And Stephen, huh? full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Later on in Acts 8, the deacon Philip was doing the same thing in Samaria, right? So help me out. What, what's the functional difference between the diaconate and the eldership? Because they're teaching and doing miraculous signs and wonders, and they're filled with grace and power, right? These deacons. So what's the functional difference between a deacon and an elder? You can't say none, because we use different words for them. 
Um, I would say. Yeah, I would say that it's the macro and the micro. Yeah, the the elders. You go. Your whole point is that you're supposed to be studying and teaching the word, praying and giving oversight, not hierarchical authority. You're the up here in the actual. No, you're giving macro oversight. Deacons. The whole point of you is to be doing the nuts and bolts ministries of various areas, but you're all filled with God's Spirit. You're all able to do signs and wonders. You're all being used by God to affect things. You're all filled with power and grace. You're all supposed to be doing all these different things, right? It's not a matter of, well, these people are more spiritual than these people. These people are the tangible people. These are the spiritual people. It's not ever the way this is presented. Is it? Because the elders have no problem waiting tables to see other people who told them to stop it, and the deacons are clearly doing all the spiritual stuff. So why do Christians today still often see deacons as lower positions, less spiritual, and God help us all, why do some churches still see them as stepping stones toward becoming elders? This is, you've you got to start as a deacon and then you can become an elder. We love hierarchy. We love being um, like above and over somebody else. Just in our nature, people want to be seen as better. And we understand the business world, what's how the business world does work. So that's, we're applying worldly principles to Absolutely. And we have been since the first century here, haven't we? I mean, again, I, there are distinctions, and I'm not trying to gloss over those. But the idea of saying deaconships, that's for lesser, less, less spiritual people. You go, no. At every stage, whether you're preaching a sermon or cleaning a bathroom, aren't you supposed to be doing all for the glory of God? Aren't you supposed to be... No, I'm not even supposed to be. Aren't you always in the presence of the Holy Spirit when you're doing these things? So shouldn't you always have the Spirit's mindset, the Spirit's motivation, the Spirit's heart as we're doing that? We dichotomize. Put it all together. We, we want hierarchies. Maybe not so that we're in charge, but we just want to know somebody's in charge. Who's in charge? And the church says, Christ. No, I mean, in the church itself, who's in charge? Christ. No. Just give us a king. Give us a, we want to see God with skin on. Can we just do that? We want to see that, and we want to dichotomize, where we say, this is mundane, that is holy. This is tangible, that is spiritual. Is that what Scripture tells us? Some things are mundane, tangible, physical. Other things are, have a spiritual component. I'm pretty sure the Spirit is supposed to have a component to everything that we're doing. Apparently, even waiting tables, we're told. So how would you describe Stephen from verses 5 and 8 here? Okay, how so? What do we know from 5 and what do we know from 8 about the qualifications he apparently has? He's willing to do the actual work. Full of faith and grace and power. Cool. What's going on in verses 9 and 10? Somebody read 9 and 10. Chapter, uh, verse 10. What's going on? Uh, they couldn't 
And I guess the guy was just waiting tables, right? That's all he's doing. He's just waiting tables. Apparently, through the Holy Spirit, he's preaching. So he's not waiting tables like he's supposed to. He's a bad deacon, right? Or is it, huh, what we talked about to begin with, that it's never just been about waiting tables. It is a ministry, and not just, but just a tangible thing. No, he's waiting tables and preaching Christ as he's doing it. Maybe preaching Christ through doing it. He's reaching out to people. He's, he's doing, And these guys bristle at something, and, and whether it's just his teaching, or it's, or it's his Greekness, or all the above, and they try to argue with him, and they can't because of what? The power of the Holy Spirit. And so you go, wait, so the Holy Spirit is empowering, empowering Stephen to love, but also at the same time empowering him to speak with dynamism, to speak with wisdom that's beyond what these guys can even attack. Holy Spirit's doing a lot of cool stuff here. Somebody read me verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who saw, sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Which means what, exactly? Glowing. Glowing and fiery. <laughs> yeah, help me out here. Uh, money. Um, if you're in Los Angeles, start to describe angels, right? How is this phrase usually interpreted by people? What? Oh my goodness gracious. How, how, when we think about, and he had the face of an angel, what do we normally say? Terrific. <laughs> yeah, like glowing. That's actually an arrow. Yeah, glowing, gentle, serene. Has anything you've heard about Stephen in any way suggested he was quietly serene? What, war about angels. Pardon me? Like war about angels. War about angels, good point. Okay. Everything that they're saying, you can probably hear that there's granules of truth in there. He keeps preaching that Jesus is going to tear down this temple. You go, my gosh. Yeah. There, there might have been parts of that in there. Not the way that they're saying it, but apparently, and anybody who's anybody would go, no, he hasn't been preaching anything. He's quietly, serenely waiting on tables. Apparently, there's enough about Stephen that people can go, oh, I've heard him preach before, and yeah, I can hear that. Maybe he never said quite the things they're, they're claiming, but apparently it's close enough to the truth that people are buying it. Um, why do people traditionally like to interpret those verses saying that Stephen is being quietly serene at the face of an angel throughout all of this? Because besides your church and Yep. Baby face, cheer. little chubby babies, and you go, that's not angels, that's Eros, you know, the Cupid, the son of Aphrodite, Venus, um, or or they're glowing, happy, smiley, uh, gentle guardian spirits, and you go, well, no, that's a completely different set of pagan uh, creatures. That's not what God's angels are like at all in Scripture. But why did we go there? Why did we go? You know what? I kind of prefer Roman angels, so I'm going to do that. I want the pagan version of this, and I'll read that back into the Bible instead of reading what the Bible says about them. Why? Because angels are scary. Because they're scary! And we don't like scary! What's the first... got to say it. What's the first thing that angels almost invariably say when anybody comes on an angel? Do not be afraid. Why? Because they're scary. Because they're scary. Don't be afraid. If... Well, maybe I'm going to say, but look, cute little baby comes up and goes, don't be afraid. Actually, if a little flying baby came up, I might be scared. But, uh, but I mean, but you know what I'm saying? If, if the whole point of angels is to be gentle and quiet and serene, then why does almost every single time that we see an angel, do they have to go, don't be scared, don't be scared? Or, at some of those crucial moments, go, oh no, be scared. Um, yeah. And a lot of the angels we read about, 
you know, they're carrying flaming swords, they're holding bowls of wrath, things like that. They, they're doing things! They're not just scary and lucky! They're doing things where they're like, oh, I am scary. What's this? It's a trumpet. What's it for? I get to blow this and your world burns. Oh, my. You know, so yes. But we, we're scared of angels, so part of this is when we hear angel, we think the version of angels that we prefer and we read that back into it, but also we like this idea of dealing with conflict serenely. Right. Yep, there's times for that. I mean, Jesus was quiet when they were attacking him. Go right, and that's what we're all supposed to do. Really? Apparently Paul stinks. He rarely did that. Is there a time for going, no, no, fierce and scary is actually what I'm doing here. When we hear he had the face of an angel, we kind of jump to thinking quietly serene. But everything we've heard about Stephen, and everything we know about angels, would suggest something different. Cross-applying everything we've already heard about Stephen and everything you know about angels, what might it mean that he had the face of an angel as they were standing against him and trying to debate him in the synagogue and in the temple? Uh, I'm not sure it's unswerving. Yeah. Power. Authority. Unswerving. Fierceness. Rightness. Not necessarily anger, but fierceness. I mean, we know that he was at peace, like that he was confident in, in that sense. In that sense. At the, you know, the very end of his speech. Hopefully we'll get there. But, um, but like the, the statement he, he gives when he uh, looks into heaven, you know, gives you the impression that he's not worried about this, the right. thing they're about to do. So there's definitely a sense of serenity and peace, but it's not... Not just uh, this sort of thing, this gentle kind of, and especially since we tend to jump here to begin with because we get, but he had the face of an angel. And you go, yeah. all right, from that argument, I'm back to fierce. Let's see if we can get to the end because it is very crucial. Some of the stuff he says, how does this phrase, what is this phrase associated with verses five and eight and ten? What do they tell us about Stephen? There's a, a confidence, a power, and a serenity, but not necessarily. From what we've read so far, so far, and it's not necessarily a quiet, gentle, warm, fuzzy, comforting serenity. So how does misunderstanding this verse and assuming he just quietly, by gentle innocence, how does that make us too often misunderstand or misrepresent the story of the stoning of Stephen? Because I would argue there's something absolutely crucial that we miss when we do that. Something that we also see in the story of Jesus. Under control. Under control. Like, we can ruin that in the story if we apply that to the circle. They could have done something, or, or maybe, maybe Stephen did something. I don't know. Jesus definitely could have done something and, and yet chose not. Yeah, Peter draws a sword and says, Oh, you need my help. And Jesus is like, What on earth or heaven ever made you think I needed your help with this? Isn't Jesus' whole point is I could have, at any moment, do you have any, any doubt that at any moment I could have called down legions of angels? You have to understand, this is not, well, or even complacency or even just quiet, gentle. This is the ultimate example of I am biting my lip. You know, I'm letting this happen for reasons. With this, it's like he has the face of an angel that is driving them bonkers. He has a face of an angel, and the way he's responding makes them feel like they need to shout him down. Do you regularly feel like you need to shout louder than the quietly serene guy? Yeah. And we know at least Philip was. So, so apparently these deacons kind of rock. But, and we're repeatedly told they can't stand up to what he's saying. So we're not told that Stephen is quiet here, are we? He, he keeps debating them, and debating them well. In fact, a 
that's what, if we can get to it, this is what we're going to see, is that he's going to say a lot of stuff. So, I, don't, I know it's going to sound like I'm just beating this drum, but I, I think it's an important drum, because I think sometimes we sit there and we go, he just kind of took it, and I'm like, no, at every step in the way, we're getting a guy who is oozing power and authority and, and confidence, and yet a piece at what's going on around him that we especially see at the very end. In his defense, in the verses that follow, he summarizes Genesis from Abraham to Moses, emphasizing the authority, the sovereignty, the power of Moses, who'd heard God's voice. Why? Why those arguments? Because their false witnesses said he was blaspheming against Moses and against God. Yes! He's like, they go, he's blaspheming against Moses and God. He's like, really? Let's talk Moses. Moses! Moses heard the Spirit of God. Moses saw God walk past. Moses heard the Word of God speaking in power and authority. And you know what? The people spoke against him, too. How is that an interesting defense to go to? I mean... And I ain't saying nothing against Moses. I am saying positive things about Moses and Abraham and the whole schmear. And I'm saying, if anything, you guys are the ones doing this. I mean, and the, yeah. So, um, also, go ahead. I was going to say, um, Moses had face God. Similar. Danger. Okay, I was going to go there, but let's do this now. How so? How did Moses have a face? see that power fading from him. That power wasn't fading from Stephen. If there is any difference between Moses and Stephen, and this is what I was going to bring up, so I'm glad you did. If there's any difference between Moses and Stephen, it's that that power wasn't fading off of Stephen. And then when we sit there and go, at the face of an angel, this is gentle cherub, you go, No! When we think of Moses coming back, having seen the presence of God, the hind parts of God, and his face glowing, everybody going, that's so impressive, and it's so impressive that he's like, I don't want you to see the impressiveness fading. And then we think, yeah, that's the impressiveness that wasn't fading off of Stephen. Get a different mental picture of what's going on here with the stoning of Stephen. This is power. Somebody read me in chapter 7, verse 35 through 40. <coughs> we'll finish this today. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. All right. So what crucial elements do we see here that he's including? He's like, he's had leadership and judgment and deliverance. He did wonders and miraculous signs, like I've been doing. He's sharing God's living words, like I've been doing. He's being rejected by his own people, like you guys are rejecting me, and rejecting Christ, because Moses, by the way, the guy that you said, we need to make sure we follow Moses, and I don't think you're following Moses well enough. Do you remember that Moses said that he, there would be a prophet even better than Moses? There would be, I don't know, like a Messiah. Like the one that you guys nailed to a tree. That. Do you remember all this? How would all that, how would that summation help defend Stephen and point to Jesus? People can realize that they're repeating that same mistake and just change their minds and not repeat it. You are standing against the Moses that we have comfortably whitewashed. We're going to use that against you. And he's like, really? Let's look at Moses. Aren't you doing exactly what they did to Moses? Aren't I doing exactly what Moses is doing? No, better yet, isn't Christ doing exactly what Moses said he would be doing? 
you guys are the ones. You're the issue. And he said this with quite a complacent serenity, yes? So here, read me, or at least look over 40. Yeah, read me quickly 44 through 50.
He's giving him boldness, he's giving him truth, he's giving him confidence, and he's giving him words. Yeah. Yeah, he's able to debate everything that they were bringing against him. Yes. And I find that interesting, and then Jesus didn't even, Jesus stayed silent. It's because it was a different situation. It was a different but yeah. situation, but it's really amazing that he was able to debate and put to rest. When they look back on it, the stoning of him, I wonder if any of them felt it. Well, I will say this. Dr. Luke wasn't there. And Stephen was dead at the end. How's Dr. Luke know this story? How's he know what he said? I'm sure it was a rampant story. Well, we know at least one person that was there, right? Oh, yeah, Saul Paulus, who Dr. Luke traveled with. So there's at least one person that says, oh, I, I remember every word that Stephen said. And it really affected Paul in a way at that time where he decided to follow the Lord. He went, no, I remember every word that he said, and I saw it as an indictment. And then later I went, oh, no, he was right, and we were all wrong. So, yeah, I think God uses, and, and without getting too much of a tangent, I mean, there have been times where I've interacted with people and stuff that the Lord has brought to my mind. It's not because I have any kind of wisdom. It's just was, it ended up being exactly the thing that, I, I say something, I'm like, oh, that's the dumbest verse to use. I shouldn't have used that verse. And somebody goes, are you nuts? We were just talking about that verse yesterday. I'm like, okay. You know, if it had been up to me, I would have not done it. But apparently that was exactly what the Holy Spirit, smarter than me, thought I should bring up. Describe the feel of Stephen's statements in verses 52 to 53. Would it be coming across? How would it be coming across in 52 and 53? What's he saying? If you want to read it, that would help. Which one of the fathers, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous ones, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not kill. Who didn't you kill? You murdered everybody! No, you're Forefathers did. Now you. You become the same sort of murderers. Quite a Right? Again, do you see that we miss something crucial here? And I, I, I hate beating, I feel stupid beating the same drum. But it's a drum that has to be beaten because so often we go, Stephen's so quiet misery because he had the face of an angel. I'm like, you miss everything he's getting at here. He is pounding them with power and authority and truth. And they are going, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. If, aren't we specifically told that that's what they did? They shouted louder and they're like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. They're resisting the power of the Holy Spirit because it's coming off of him in waves. And we miss all that because we happily hold on to our more comfortable traditions. Hey, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Isn't that exactly what they were doing? You're not listening to Moses. No, you're not listening to Moses. He had a face of an angel. Yeah! Scary. Authoritative. Powerful. Somebody read Acts 7, 54-56, but think about your inflections before you do. Somebody read me 54-56. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is his quietly serene, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Isn't that the way we preach it, though? He's like, I see heaven open up. Look, there's Jesus. It's right before they stoned him. Is that what he said? Look, this is what you guys do! No, 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 yes! No, no! I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father! Heaven itself is cracking open and standing against you, you murderers. And that's when they threw rocks at him, right? Describe the two reactions. How might we miss it? Because we miss what he's doing. We miss why they're reacting. They're not saying, I just disagree with this nice man. Let's throw rocks at him. They're like, we are under the conviction of God himself. We are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And I could break and say, he's right. As we know, at least one of them eventually did. Not just God eventually got to me, but one of them, probably Paul, but at least one of them later said, he was absolutely right. Stephen was right. And the reason I know that is because somebody told Luke what to write down. So at least one of them. They were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They could have broken and said, you know what, he's right. But instead they said, God himself is convicting me, and so I refuse to listen. I stick my fingers in my ear, I gnash my teeth, I throw rocks at that person talking, because I don't want to hear it. We miss all of that. We miss all of that if we look at this the wrong way. Full of the Holy Spirit, speaking in power, filled to overflowing, the, the Spirit overfluting, of cascading off of them. That's when he speaks words that drive them bonkers. So somebody read me 57 through 81. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Okay. How have the two reactions escalated here? What's the, what's the Sanhedrin doing in verse 57? <clears throat> literally! I mean, you, if you think, oh, Captain's being hyperbolic. No, they're literally covering their ears going, I'm not this way, I'm not this way. <clears throat> How's that an escalation? They were debating him, right? And that didn't work. So they brought false witnesses and said, you're, you're obviously disregarding Moses. So he's like, let's talk Moses. And they lost that. So then they go, ah, 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 shouting and shouting. And he goes, you can't shout louder than I can. And they go, then I'm not even listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to throw rocks at you until you're not making noises anymore. What would have happened? What would have happened if when they were first debating it, and they said, you know what? We can't beat him. His arguments are right. He's speaking the word of God. What happened if they said, maybe we should listen? Before even dragging him to court, before creating false witnesses, before citing Moses, before trying to shout him down. Do you see an escalation? And at every step, it became that much harder for them to actually hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What would happen in us? I'm sorry, have you ever experienced an escalation of poor thinking in your life? What would have happened if early on, when it was still a molehill, before it became a mountain, before it became a volcano, what would have happened if at that molehill you went, what am I doing? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier to change course then? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier to say, Lord, forgive me, i got a bad attitude, as opposed to, I probably shouldn't have shot her. Describe young Saul Paulus. What's he doing in verse giving approval to this. Describe Stephen in verses 59 and 60. How is that escalated? He's crying to the Lord. He's kind of like stop talking to them yeah. directly now just to God. And yet it's interesting. Because um, what's the very last thing he says? So here's the thing. Just like Jesus. He's actually filled with the Holy Spirit. And strangely, he's acting divine. If you're filled with the divine, and you're living out the divine, amazingly, you might follow that example. Huh. A, lot of, a lot of people, if, if people are running at you, covering their ears, screaming at you, and throwing rocks, it's, you would be angry. At that. You might, you might, you might. So here's the thing. This is where it gets interesting. Because there's a couple ways to view this. He's been fierce. And, and I think it's important in the story for you to realize the Holy Spirit has given him power. 
and fierceness and authority. What if he's still just as fierce in these last two statements? What if he's still just as powerful, just as commanding? How do you read those? He says he's crying with a loud voice. And they're shouting and everything, too. So, so why would he shout it? So they can hear it? Maybe? Instead of saying, ow, ow, he's yelling at them. Forgive them, what were you saying? I was going to say, I would say that this is probably the most fierce thing that he has said in God. Why? Because it's an escalation of his warning and trying to teach him about his work and how to talk to him to show different things. It's not just a crumpling acquiescence. It's all of this, everything I've been doing, is to reach you, murderers. God forgive them. They are so ignorant of what they're doing. God forgive them. Now, here's the other side. What if he is actually, at this point, serene? If it's not a crumpling acquiescence, if he is going... Now, to be honest, the, the phrase, and he said this with, he cried out with a loud voice, makes this a little... Harder to picture, but I want to throw a bone to everybody who's like, but I want him serene. Okay, fine. What if at this point he actually is serene? And it's not just giving up. Calm, peaceful, quiet, at peace. I think And he's like, time to go home. But the last thing I say before I go home is that I care about these guys. I'm sorry. Remind me. What did Jesus say in chapter 1 of Acts? What would happen? The Holy Spirit would empower them so that they would what? Be his witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And as powerful as his witness has been, and as powerful as he's been putting scripture, as powerful as he is, and, and again, you have to see it this way, you're missing. As powerful as the cascading Holy Spirit has been off of him, waves of authority hitting them, the last thing he does is to love them well. This thing that we tend to drop out of that empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that he would be empowering us to love. And yet, don't we see it all over the place? Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples. You'll have a good witness if you, by how much you love. And he says, I want you to love. And you're going to break bread together and love one another. And, and you're going to be reaching out and sharing food and love to the people around you. And as a result of that empowered, active loving, priests are coming to know the Lord. We love to look at the the dunamis, and it is, and except here where we somehow bleed it out. But isn't so much of this coming down to what makes the huge difference is the love, the genuine "I am committed to meeting your needs rather than just my own." Who's acting the most naturally here? How so? Yes, it's a PK question. How so? These guys are being completely natural in the flesh. That escalation thing, we do that all the time. Stephen is being completely natural to his new nature. This is what comes from actually living as if we actually mean this. What does all this tell us about how the Holy Spirit can use a Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that... You filled Stephen with the Holy Spirit so much so that he had the face of an angel and he was speaking with power and you didn't protect him from dying. So I pray, Lord, forgive us for any time that we assume you're not doing your job if something bad happens to us. Lord, I pray, use our lives, use our witness at every level to make a difference and to show your love to those around us. Even if we have to show that love with power and growly authority, where we show that love with affection and warmth and, and holding people, where we show that affection by quietly listening to people. Lord, help us to be led by your spirit, not by what comes naturally to us in our flesh. To show your love and to be filled with your spirit and to be empowered to be witnesses.
In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, what, what ended up happening right after this? Do you guys remember? Yep. What? Not just the persecution of Jerusalem, what happens? The diaspora where they're spread out to where? Like Judea and Samaria. Because now we're in chapter 8. What goes on in chapter 8? That's Philip, right? Who's doing wonders where? In Samaria. Where he ends up running across who? Who he helps draw to the Lord. And then the Ethiopian unit goes where? The ends of the earth, founding a church that has existed since then to this day. It's the oldest church in the world. So you sit there and you go, oh, uh, oh, so why might God allow pain, suffering, death? And then you go, because I told you, you're going to be empowered to be my witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You go, okay, but then he got killed. Praise God. Okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I I I don't I I don't recall that detail. Choose to not always. 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 Not always.